I think motherhood sort of changed me at my core. And it's really hard to make the same thing when you're a very different person on the inside. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today, I'm talking with artist Catherine Duclos-Rosenbaum. Catherine and I met 25 years ago in high school when I knew her as Kate. She always struck me as a really self-assured, confident, and creative person. Although we haven't seen each other since then, I followed her career with excitement. Since high school in New England, she's been a prolific artist. She received her MFA in painting and drawing from Pratt Institute in 2012 in Brooklyn, New York. Then in late 2017, she moved with her family from New York City to Vancouver, British Columbia, where she maintains an active multimedia studio practice, delving into concepts of motherhood, identity, neurodivergence, materiality, and more. Her work is a reflection of her engagement with her family, environment, and her experience as a woman, as well as a response to materials she has found and collected. She has exhibited her work in Canada and the U.S. and has worked as a teaching artist for organizations such as Studio in a School in New York City and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. In this conversation, Kate and I talked about her art and specifically how she has navigated art spaces quite literally since she became a mother. Her relationship to her artistic practice shifted with motherhood and now encompasses a broader purpose because it is personal and connected to community. I would love to hear to start about how you've navigated your growth as an artist. I separate my career into different stages. And when I became a mother, it changed completely. So my pre-motherhood art and my post-motherhood art, it's not that they're made by two different people, but in many ways they are. I think motherhood sort of changed me at my core. And it's really hard to make the same thing when you're a very different person on the inside. So prior to becoming a mom, I got my MFA at Pratt Institute, and I graduated in December of 2011. And I was teaching full-time for a nonprofit in New York City called Studio in a School that places artists into Title I schools that don't have art programs. And so it was sort of a residency model. And that kept me really busy. I mean, it was full-time teaching, and it was traveling all over New York. I worked in all the boroughs. And so it was really long days. And I was making but I was sort of not producing a body of work. I was making work and then it would kind of get put away because I didn't have a studio. And making at home, it's just a different process. When you have a studio, you live with what's around you on the walls. Everything gets put up and left out and you kind of establish a dialogue with the work where the work talks to each other. But if you're working at home and you don't have the space to leave everything up and out, you have to put it away each time. And in the act of putting things away, it's almost like shutting down that dialogue every time. And so it's really hard to continue kind of really exploring and pressing one theme or one subject because you keep getting interrupted. And when I had my son, the goal was to teach part-time. Like I was going to go back to work, but the organization 
didn't keep its maternity promise as the maternity leave promise as it was supposed to. And so they wanted to put me at a different school, which would have been a harder job. And I said, I wanted the job I had. (laughs) I knew all the difficulties there. And I just had a kid. I'm not looking to kind of establish myself in a new school. And so I did not go back to work. And that was a surprise. I had never intended to be a mom who stayed home and tried to make work on the side. And I'm really glad now in retrospect that it happened this way, because I think if I had still been teaching and mothering full time, I would never have had the creative energy to dedicate to my own work. I think it would have gotten sidelined for a long time. And all of this also speaks to my privilege. I'll just, I am supported. My husband is a pediatric radiologist, so I am not making art to pay our bills. And that is a huge difference. Like I have the ability to make, and if nothing sells, we're not in dire straits. So it's a very different, I look at artists who don't have that support, who have to hold down a full-time job in addition to making. And I'm just blown away by that persistence and ability to kind of work at your craft when you have to, because making art when you have to is different than making art when you want to, or when the inspiration strikes, or it's really different. So I've been really lucky to be able to have a partner that supports us financially, but also supports my goals. He sees me working at home and making a mess of our life, and he's okay with that. (laughs) So I'm very lucky. And I guess the shift in the work I guess it didn't actually happen right when my son was born. It was more when my daughter was born. So maybe when I became a mother of two, that's when things really shifted. So with the first one, I decided, okay, I'm going to be an artist. I'm not going to be a teacher and an artist. I'm going to be an artist. And when was that in your chronology of you graduated from Pratt in 2011 and you were in New York and you were working? And then I had my son in 2016 and we were in New York still. Yeah. And then in 2017, Late 2017, in October, we moved to Vancouver, British Columbia. Mm -hmm. And that was for my husband's job. And I had never been here. I came for the interview weekend. And that was sort of a shock, like moving to Canada. That was never part of our plan. (laughs) But again, I'm really happy it happened. And we won't be coming back to America anytime soon. So yeah, we moved here in 2017. And then I did get a studio. And that was a big shift. And I had the studio until my daughter was born. Because having a studio space when you are physically attached to a human that needs you to survive is really sort of a waste of money. (laughs) So I just wasn't able to get there. And my studio was not like a, oh, bring the baby to the studio with you kind of place. It was like, it's not really a place for a baby, the art studio, at least the way I work. And so I just, I gave it up. And that was really hard because it felt like, When I had gotten the studio space, I had room to grow all of a sudden. And then I had my second child and it felt like I had to shrink as a person to make room for this second baby. It was like, in order for me to have enough for you, I have to literally give up this physical space that I had been taking up in the world. (laughs) So it was a really, like that happens to me a lot where I, I see the very concrete, literal examples of motherhood interfering with like the thing that I really want to get done. Right. Wow. Are you a very, I mean, I would assume that there's such a visual spatial element to that experience or a tactile, right? A very material sense of what motherhood is. 
I mean, it's interesting, the stuff that comes along with moving a studio, similar to the stuff that comes along with motherhood, you know, it's, I had to move all of it home. It's not like I just put my studio in storage, I had to move it all home. And so all of my art stuff lives with everything else in our house. And I don't have a room that is like my studio room at home. It's I work in the kitchen, I work on the table when it's free. I work in the toy room, I work on our front porch. I work wherever I can carve out a little tiny space, but it comes with so much stuff. Just the clutter is above and beyond. And I'm not an organized person in general. And so it's really hard for me to exist in our house with like my art and the kids stuff everywhere. And it's all these ideas mixing. And it's a blessing and a curse because if I hadn't moved my studio home, I might've still been making work that wasn't about me. And when I had my daughter, Nina, and that was in 2019. So I gave up my studio maybe four or five months after she was born. And I was also going through postpartum depression. So there was like a double edge, like just loss. Like I was mourning this just sense of self and space. And what came from that, there were months of struggle from like August of 2019 until December 2019. I felt really lost as a person and as a mother and as an artist because I was going through the depression piece and I lost this kind of identity foothold I had with the studio space and it shifted my work. I no longer knew what to make because in my studio space, I was working on Yupo paper, which is a plastic paper that doesn't absorb anything. And I would make these puddles on the floor, basically these ink and acrylic puddles, and then they would dry. And I couldn't do that work at home because I can't leave puddles on the floor for 48 to 72 hours. That was not sustainable. With children running around. <laughs> well, that might be it. <laughs> and it's like India ink, you know, and acrylic paint. It just doesn't come out like just <laughs> not home materials. I'm not like a small miniature painter or watercolorist that can neatly do it at the table. This was messy stuff. So I couldn't make the work anymore that I had been making. And I was going through a lot of personal struggles. And at the time I had low milk supply and I was pumping in order to keep up my milk supply. And I had low supply with my son as well. And I sort of broke myself trying to continue to produce. I would pump in between every feeding for 18 months just to get enough to give him a bottle for bedtime so that my husband could participate in the feeding process. And so it was to get myself a little bit of space and freedom to be able to leave and have a bottle for him and for my daughter. But it got to the point where, I mean, I would pump for half an hour, I would do the power pumping and I would produce maybe an ounce if I was lucky, two ounces. And so it was hours of pumping just to get a bottle. And I did it for so long with my son. I think I kept it up for yeah, 18 months. And with my daughter, I couldn't do it. And so I made it to eight months of pumping and she was eating a lot by that point. And so I kind of made my peace with the fact that I wasn't going to be able to give her like as much milk. She didn't need formula, but I, that pressure that we put on ourselves, and like, I know you understand that of wanting to provide. And then when you can't, there's this feeling of inadequacy. And so these deep feelings of inadequacy coupled with the depression and the loss of space. And then this identity as an artist where I didn't even know what to make anymore. It was really, really hard. And I had this idea 
And it was this like crazy idea. I told a couple of my artist friends and they were sort of like, but that's not even at all what you make. Like that's, why would you do that? And my idea was that I wanted to collect breast pumps. I wanted to collect as many as I could because I had been sitting with the sound of the pump just so much. It was this rhythmic, haunting sound. And I had a Spectra S2. I also had a Medela pump and style. And I used to use both one after the other because it would give me a little bit more milk if I used them both because their suctions were slightly different. This is crazy. I would pump with one and then I pump with the other oh right God. after breastfeeding. It was intense. So I gave up pumping and I said, okay, now that I've decided not to pump anymore, I mm-hmm. want to get all the pumps that I can. And instead of running away from these feelings of anxiety, I'm going to sit in them and I'm going to amplify it. And I think that artists have a couple of different responses to whatever it is they're making work about, whatever question or you're making work about something, you're responding to something in the world, or at least that's what good art responds to something or it poses a question. It's one or the other. Right. And I think that at the time, the question that I wanted to pose and answer myself was sort of, can I sit with this? Can I really accept it? Can I accept my low supply? Instead of running away from this problem or this anxiety, I'm really going to embrace it. I'm going to sit in it and then I'm going to see if I'm alone. I put out a call on Facebook. You're not allowed to sell breast pumps on Facebook because it's a single use medical device and single use medical devices are not allowed to be resold. I mean, what a boon for the breast pump industry. I did not know that because I've seen many be sold, I guess, not on Facebook. Technically, they're not supposed to be sold ever. Or donate. I mean, there's definitely a lot that get given as well. Yes. But I mean, if you tried to give it to a secondhand store, they probably would not be able to accept it because it's a single use medical device. And that classification, again, there must have been lobbying on the pump (laughs) company's part (laughs) because it really is a ridiculous thing. Mothers have been using and sharing breast pumps since like since they were. And why is it any different from a bottle? If you're, I guess, I don't know if people sell, can you sell bottles on Facebook? The difference is that some of the milk might get into the machine and there's no way of knowing if the machine has been kind of compromised by the previous user's milk. It's ridiculous. (laughs) So you can't sell them on Facebook. And so many women end up with these pumps. And if they don't have friends to pass them on to, they become junk and plastic and metal to get rid of. And I knew, I knew a bunch of people who had them. And so I just put out a call. I said, send me your breast pumps. And people did. Then I said, okay, I don't just want your pumps. I want everything. Send me everything that you have left over from this feeding process. And I could not believe the response. Within a couple of months, I had, I think I've gotten something like 40 something pumps so far. And those are the hardest to collect because people actually have to mail them to me and they're expensive. I don't pay for shipping. And so the fact that people have even been willing to send them across the country and, you know, I've gotten them from all the way from the States. I got one from England. So it's crazy the lengths that people have gone to to just participate in this artwork. But it's bottles, it's pump parts, it's all the tubing, it's everything that has to do with feeding. And my attic is full of it now. And what I found when this work switched, when I said, okay, I'm going to make work about me, is that I'm actually making work about so many mothers. I was reminded of, I can't say I learned it because I remember a grad school professor saying it. So I must have learned it in grad school but that the universal is accessed through the personal. 
we can't get to a point where we universally understand something or tap into it or relate to it unless the person sharing it gives us access. There's a vulnerability that really good art has that other people can look at it and say, I see myself in that. And it serves as a mirror. And I think that when you're making work that is not personal, that is not about you, it's much harder to create that mirror for other people. And it was scary at first because my work had previously not been about me. And it felt like taking up space, like me saying, my experience is valid of other people looking at it. And that felt very uncomfortable. And I feel that most women have felt that discomfort of saying whatever their ideas are valid. And so I think it was a really like a life-changing, career-changing decision. I haven't really gone back. Like my work now is just, it's been plugging away at these same themes of my life and parenting and my house and what we go through on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. That was a long answer. No, it's (laughs) exactly the answer that it needed to be. It's fascinating. So just to clarify too, for listeners, the project and the work that you were doing with the breast milk related paraphernalia, what was that called? And where did it show? Or like, how did people engage with it in the world? I'm still making it. So the project, the body of work I titled Low Supply, that was just where it started for me. And the project is not about having low supply. It's about the emotional toll and the burden and what mothers hide in order to be good mothers. It's about what we kind of don't say out loud or maybe just with our small group of friends who we find, like the moms, your mom posse, the mom friends that you share all the difficult stuff with. And some people don't have that group. Some people sit with the hard stuff and they don't share it at all. And so it was really me trying to create a space and a dialogue around an experience I did not see much space and dialogue out there. The idea that breastfeeding is hard is not talked about enough. The idea that it is traumatic is not talked about enough. The idea that the debate of breast milk or formula that's been around forever and the kind of should I breastfeed, can I breastfeed, they're different questions. And I think for women who can't and for women whose supply is naturally lower, it's really hard to feel that pressure and then to try to meet it. And I think it really was an attempt to find community. And so it was really important to me to include other mothers. And so when I collected the objects, I also collected statements and I'm still collecting statements. I'm calling them milk testimonials. And they're like 200 words about anything a woman wanted to share about their breastfeeding experience, anything that they didn't know, advice that they'd gotten that was just bonkers, just like, no, that's really bad advice that continuously gets passed on to women year after year after year. And it's been really eye-opening to read them. And I'm recording them into a sound piece. The breast pumps I'm also using to make a sound piece. They're really interesting because all the different brands sound really different and they're so foreign and weird looking and uncomfortable. And (laughs) like if people weren't familiar with them, they would really look at the devices and be like, what is that? Like, what is that used for? A pump flange? That's a weird object. (laughs) Like it looks weird. And if you don't know what it's for, good luck guessing. (laughs) Right. 
I'm picturing like relics being unearthed at some point in like 10,000 years. <laughs> what was this used for? That's exactly what I did with it. I had all this plastic stuff and I said, okay, what art material speaks to this? And I said, oh, cement, which is sort of really strange for me because I'm not a sculptor. I had never made a sculpture in my artistic career, but now I am a sculptor because I had all these objects and it was like, what do these objects want to be? And I said, okay, well, these are archaic and weird looking. They're uncomfortable. What would somebody 500 years from now think of this if they found it? And so I started mixing the parts with cement and creating these, I call them artifacts of breastfeeding, like artifacts, like man-made milk extractor type mm -hmm. things. And then I made cement towers made from bottle nipples where mm -hmm. I cast each nipple and put them together. I started collecting frozen expired milk. Freezer stashes are mm -hmm. universal for women who pump and they have so much meaning and so much emotional weight. I mean, the old adage of don't cry over spilled milk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Breastfeeding mothers, yes, cry over the spilled milk. We all cry over the spilled <laughs> milk. <laughs> so the stash is a really weighted thing and women save it. I have gotten milk from women who have kept it in their freezer for seven years. I have freezer milk from six years. Yeah, <laughs> right? Have... My husband's like, you are taking up so much room in this freezer. Like, I think it caused our previous refrigerator and freezer to fail because I just, you're like, yeah, it's this weird. How do you get rid of it? I think that for me, it was like, you know what goes into it, that it's so hard to let go of it because there's this feeling of like, what if, what if, what if, like, what if there's something to do with this and the emotional, there's just like, it's all wrapped up. It's not just the literal, but the emotional attachment to what was produced. It's the only tangible thing left. Mm -hmm. Like breastfeeding is such an intense formative experience and it doesn't get talked about while you're doing it. Really. People will say like, Oh, how is he feeding? Oh, how's the lad? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there's no actual discussion about what it means to sustain a life with your body and what that does to you and all of the emotions that go into it. And then you have this tangible, hard object left over and you don't want to get rid of it because that's what is left of this experience that you may never have again. At one point, your body will stop being able to do. Although that's not even true because people can relactate as grandmothers. Like there's lots of cultures that practice relactation as second generation caregivers, which is amazing. But yeah, it's a reminder. And I think that it's work, it's labor, it's so much went into producing it. And so when I asked women to give it to me, I sort of knew that it was a big ask. But so many jumped at the chance because it would be used. And that's what mothers want. Like we want to be useful. We want to produce something that will go to use. The idea of wasting stuff is so hard for so many mothers. And acknowledgement, oh, like somebody is going to acknowledge the labor that went into producing this milk. And so I took all this milk and I, at the time, I didn't quite know what I was going to do with it. I just knew that the objects held power. And I think as an artist, when you find objects that have power, for me, there's a desire to transform them, to make that power accessible to the audience, to change how we view something. It's an opportunity. And so I saw the freezer stash as an opportunity to delve into some very deep feelings. 
And so I collected it and I filled my own freezer with other women's frozen breast milk that was no longer good. (laughs) And then I figured out how to burn it. And so I paint it onto canvas and I burn the milk onto the canvas. And so it's invisible when it goes on. And then I burn it and it becomes permanent and visible. And so it's taking something that is transitory and really making it last. And the milk transforms the canvas, just like the breastfeeding experience changes the mother. And because it's burned into it, you really can't separate it. There's no surface. It can't be scraped off. It becomes part of the canvas. And so that's another thing that I'm doing with it. And now I've sort of moved away from the breastfeeding topic slightly. My daughter is turning three in a couple of weeks and my oldest just turned six yesterday. Yay, and so happy sort of, birthday and birthday. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe it. Six, it's, it went by so cheesy. It went by so fast. Kate's art practice has also been shifting as her personal relationship to breastfeeding changes. It's often the case that mothers shift their focus once children grow. It follows that Kate's shifting feels like a natural point for her to re-examine the materiality of different phases of motherhood. So now my work is focusing a little bit more on me as I figure out now that this intense early motherhood phase is over, what now? Who am I? Like, what is left of me? Am I the same person as I was before? No, that's impossible. How am I different? What is the direction that I want to take myself? What work am I making now? And a lot of it is focusing on my relationship with my son, who is autistic, and sort of figuring out how to mother him and how to mother myself. And yeah, it's branching out. And I'm happy about that because when I started, I worried if I just make work about motherhood and milk, then that's going to be what people know me for. And it's going to be pigeonholed to like exhibitions about mothers. And that's hard in the art world because art and motherhood has never been easy. It's never been accepted. It's always been, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the idea that an artist could succeed as a mother was just like, no way. Like you have to choose, you have to pick one. And I know that that's true for a lot of careers. The art world is so dominated by the male voice. And I know like writing is too. I mean, getting the female story out there is very difficult. Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's such a challenge. So I was really worried when I started making this work that it would limit me as an artist. And it has actually done the exact opposite. I've had more opportunities since making this work than in all the years kind of added up before that. The work has shown in a number of places. A show in New York just came down at Yee Gallery in Brooklyn, which was a five artist show centered on text. And the pieces that were in that show were all I called them notes from an invisible mother, and they were all breast milk painted onto paper that was not burned. And so it aged over time. And the notes that are in the show are varying ages. And so the milk has done different things to the paper and the expressions on them. Some of them say things like, this is work. And then the one next to it will say, pay me. And then the one next to it says, what are the benefits? One of them says mental load. One of them says there are no days off. So it's little things that we think to ourselves over the course of a day, but don't really say out loud about motherhood. You know, nobody wants to be seen as the mother who hates being a mother. And so we try to keep our talk mostly positive. And I think in doing so, we're disallowing so many feelings that moms need to be able to express. So it's been good. The art world has been very receptive 
to this work, which has been really exciting. If we could just, I want to take a second with regards to where this genesis came from and how, I'm curious just in terms of your own relationship with creating this work while you're a mother, because obviously this podcast, so much of my impetus, I mean, I have a two month old (laughs) and I'm thinking as you're talking, actually, I was thinking that this experience of doing this is taking me away from my child. It's taking me, I mean, as I told you, sorry, I'm going to be a little late. I'm nursing my child. I am already seeing the impact of how navigating time and space with another human being and having to feed that child is how it could impact my breastfeeding relationship with that child, for example. Kate and I spoke for a while about capitalist society and the expectations on mothers to produce something meaningful, as well as the critical importance larger communities have on breastfeeding and early caregiving support. I think that one thing I think a lot about is the fact that women in Western capitalist societies today are required to produce and sustain something that would never have been left solely to them. So obviously, like we talk about the village and communal support, but I don't know, actually don't have an answer to this question. I'm sure others and hopefully other experts that I can bring on the podcast can answer this for me. But I'm curious how much other breastfeeding was like in a historical Alloparenting, if you know familiar with that term, but that's the term I'm obsessed with, is this idea of obviously that the mother herself is not the only caregiver for a child. Where I feel like, obviously, again, where we are right now, that's not often the case. But ways in which others had not only cared for the child, but actually breastfed the child. Right? And I'm not talking like wet nurses. I'm talking no, more, I know, I know. you know, situations because I think about that in supply, right? Like where a sister-in-law or a sister or a cousin, or like you said, a grandparent would also be able to feed and provide for that child in that way. So I often think about just that pressure is coming at a place or this idea that we have low supply may actually be completely inaccurate and that our supply is completely normal for a human being, but not in this particular situation in which we are asked to mother. And it's super infuriating to me that that would then become this personal judgment or societal judgment even on that individual. It actually dates back, the earliest known mentions of lactation failure date back to the papyrus blanking here. So we might need to add this in. It's really old, the Egyptian papyrus. Okay, interesting. Yeah. It's really old. Like the idea that milk can fail you. Mm -hmm. In your research, what was the remedy for that? Or how did children survive that? I mean, I think at the time you're right that other people could definitely step in, you know, like people have been trying to fix lactation failure for (laughs) a long time. So there was like herbs and stuff kind of prescribed to moms. And that also just blows me away that for so long, we've had these same issues. And I think like for me, I didn't know anything about low supply when I had my first, I didn't understand the hormones behind it. I didn't understand prolactin. I didn't understand that early menstruation is a sign that you're going to have like a low prolactin output. I got my period both times, three months after giving birth, two months. And that's completely related to my supply. Like there are explanations, there are reasons, but women are not told them. And if you seek them, if you want to find out why you have low milk supply, what you are told is to just start formula. 
And so there's this drive that women, like our bodies are not even researched well enough to be able to answer very simple questions. Right. And obviously like being apart from your child, like if they are not with you significantly early on, that all of those ruptures impact the relationship and no one is there to either inform you of that so that you can make a choice if that's something that is imposed upon you or is required of you, like what are the remedies for that, right? From that early relationship onward and then asking women to go back to office structures that are so outside the norm of like just the necessarily, like you said, the hormonal relationship that is so intricate and then gets like decoupled in some way. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that like the sharing of the responsibility, like I look at, groups now at like my Facebook groups or my online mom groups. And it's a desperate attempt to get back to the village mode. I know my mom, she was a big La Leche League person in the seventies and she used to run meetings and breastfeeding other people's kids was part of it. And they used to do it to build up antibodies because, you know, your breast milk is full of antibodies and every woman's What you have in your milk changes on a day-to-day basis. Our nipples are actually diagnosing through backwash what our babies need every single time we breastfeed. And so when you breastfeed another kid, that kid needs something different. Your body starts producing those antibodies. So the more children you breastfeed and the more mothers a baby gets their milk from, theoretically, it's actually building up more protection for that baby and for the mother. So biologically speaking, it's a great idea, but I think people are just really like weirded out by that. I think the idea of handing your baby over to somebody else nowadays comes with anxiety and a feeling that you are shirking your responsibility. Whereas I think maybe hundreds of years ago, that type of personal anxiety, I don't know, I'd like to think it didn't exist. Well, there's also a normalization of it, right? Like like you're saying, if that's normalized within the community, then yeah. you wouldn't even ever have that adjustment, right? right it's just right. what you grew up seeing. If you grew up seeing that, then you would not yes. expect anything different, right? So it's been stripped away again. And then as a result, let's make women feel terrible about it when it's not working appropriately for them, right? Or like we have placed all this expectation and then love to punish when... This is just one more thing. My mother gave me a copy of The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding when, actually no, she gave a copy to my sister and then my sister passed that copy to me when I was pregnant with my son. And I will admit I didn't read it all. I was sort of like skimming the pages and it seemed like a bit on the cheesy end for my particular reading tastes. But when I reread it, when I went back to it with this project, there was a line that I read that just enraged me. Like it just filled me with rage. And it said that there is almost nothing you can do that will be more important in establishing a bond with your child than breastfeeding. I went and got an X-Acto knife and I cut it out of the book. And then I just started cutting out phrases and paragraphs that I found put entirely too much pressure on women to do this thing. I'm all for breastfeeding. I'm all for education. I'm all for like, we have pushed formula on lowing communities. We have shipped it off to other countries and taught women that it's better than their breast milk. There's so much wrong with all of that. But there's also something seriously wrong with telling a woman, if you're not able to breastfeed, you are missing out on the singularly most important way to bond with your child. Like I can't imagine reading that 
at the time struggling with the breastfeeding process. Right. And also when there's not the support, right? Like, again, we're going to tell you that this is that thing and then not give you the appropriate measure of support, whether it's, I mean, we could unpack so many different ways in which there is not support. And we could go right from the beginning of whether it's infertility, fertility, pregnancy, childbirth. I mean, it's all part of the same system that is saying, we want you to do everything and we're not, but we're not actually going to help you do that. We're not going to actually, we want you to shoulder this burden that we are not paying you for. And thank you so much. We'll give you a holiday once a year. (laughs) <laughs> which you will oh most likely have to plan yourself <laughs> <laughs> and take on the mental load oh my of God. What do for Mother's Day. <laughs> I have complicated feelings about Mother's Day too. While I agree motherhood should be celebrated, the capitalistic nature of the holiday of corporations just finding more reasons to convince you to buy something for mothers, coupled with the guilt and potentially heartache for those who are grieving the loss of their mothers or an inability to become a mother themselves adds to the complication. The rage, like I feel your rage at that statement and I feel your rage. Right now, all of my anger is like directed at this giant amorphous system, which I'm now just trying to unpack. Like how do I though, I mean, I think that's what's really beautiful about what you're doing. And actually it's a question for you. What was the impact that you saw in a very practical sense And did you feel that then your art, I'm assuming, it sounds like your art had meaning, not just to you, obviously, in terms of that personal experience and the personal story in that journey, but to others, or could you see it shift the needle in any way from a wider sort of political, social standpoint? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the context of like my day-to-day life, it changed so much for me just in terms of how I think about making when the work is your life, it's really hard to compartmentalize for me. And initially that was a problem, like carving out time to make the stuff was a problem until I said, there are no divisions. This whole thing is the work. It's all the work, like everything I'm doing. If I take the time to document it, if I take the time to share it and write about it and think about it, this is the work. This is what I need to be doing right now. So it's the motherhood. It's the way that I'm thinking about it that I think is the creative energy. Whether I make something with those thoughts depends on the day-to-day and how much time I have and whether or not my second is napping. She's about to drop the nap. I'm beside myself. There's definitely a shift in thinking. And I think that that shift is happening culturally. I think that I know in the art world right now, Art and motherhood is having a moment. There are shows being dedicated to this. There's more dialogue. There are more artists making work about motherhood now, probably than there has ever been, because women are no longer seeking permission. And I think that's what it was giving up permission, not needing that anymore, to just make the responses I've gotten from people. It's been so rewarding. I don't think the years prior, I got compliments on my work but I did not get messages sent to me out of the blue from somebody who saw something like now they feel seen. I get messages from women that I don't know just saying, thank you for making this. Like my experience is validated in what you have created. And that's like amazing. I mean, that's, I can't really think of like a better response to 
a piece of art. I mean, maybe if they bought it and said that, that would be the best. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, ultimately having some of the work sell would be validating. But I think that just knowing it is reaching people, it's reaching people, it's making others shift their own feelings about it. And if I can change that experience for one woman from a negative to a positive, if I can make one mom feel like, oh, I'm not alone in carrying this heavy burden. Like I see the weight of my daily job in this concrete sculpture. Like that to me is power. That's like giving voice to something and I'm voicing what I need and what is in me. But for other people to see it and feel it, that's pretty much like I think what an artist seeks. Oh, thank you for doing that, for being brave enough to take that step and to also to the community that obviously cared enough to support you in gifting all of the material objects. Yeah, I couldn't have done it without other mothers. And what a commentary in general about like, we can't do it without other mothers. Mm -hmm. I think that anytime a woman tries to produce anything, there's so many things going against her just from the get go. And so you have so many obstacles to overcome. I feel like, and men don't do it alone either. Men rely on the patriarchy and the systems that have been set up and they rely on getting a leg up on others via other men. Like men do it. But women, yeah, there's just been so many obstacles. And so I think there has to be more coming together without competition. And I think for women, that's hard because we've been taught to compete with each other for a long time. So the idea of being supportive and building up other women without it needing to be beneficial to us necessarily, I don't think that comes naturally to a lot of women. I think that it's something that maybe you really need to feel firmly established in your own identity. And so I think I'm finding more of that in my late in life female friendships than I ever did in my early in life female friendships. And I think There's something to be said about getting to that point in your life where you're old enough to not care. You're not kind of bending yourself over backwards to be somebody other than you are. It makes it easy to support other people when you're curing yourself. And I think for a lot of women early on, that's a really hard place to find. And with motherhood, we're sort of taught to be insecure. Mm -hmm. Mothers are taught that just all the stuff, it's like, how to, how to, how to, you have to learn how to do this. Right. And all you're doing there is creating a culture of women who think they don't know how to do it. Right. And so I think that there's definitely, yeah, there's something to that. Kate's art has a literal focus on production. It is not just about the creative work she produces, but also about her relationship and many other women's relationships to producing breast milk. And it's personal. And like her children, her art making, studio spaces, and practice itself is shifting as her perspective on motherhood grows. This episode felt like it split naturally here. Kate and I also discussed the importance of her son's neurodivergence and her own self-discovery as she learned through parenting him as well as creating art in relationship with his lived experiences. You'll hear more of our conversation in part two. In the meantime, you can find out more about Kate's work at katherineduclo.com. That's K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-D-U-C-L-O-S.com. Follow her on Instagram, which you can find in our show notes, and learn more about recent expositions where her work has been featured. 
I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at Postpartum Production Podcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. <laughs>